I'm very happy to be introducing tonight's moderator, Ms. Kim Masters. Kim Masters hosts KCRW's The Business and is editor-at-large of The Hollywood Reporter. A former NPR correspondent, she has also served as contributing editor at Vanity Fair, Time, and Esquire, and as a staff reporter for The Washington Post. She is the author of The Keys to the Kingdom, The Rise of Michael Eisner, and The Fall of Everybody Else, and co-author of Hit and Run, How John Peters and Peter Goober Took Sony for a Ride in Hollywood. Hollywood. In June, she was awarded Entertainment Journalist of the Year by the LA Press Club. We're very, very happy to host Ms. Kim Masters. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to introduce the rest of our guests. Uh, right here to my left is James Andrew Miller. He's worked in politics, media, and entertainment in a career spanning 25 years. He got his start, he is, I, I should say he got his uh, bachelor's degree in political science and economics at Occidental College. He got his start as a member of the TV reporting team at the Washington Post before becoming special assistant and chief speechwriter to Senate Majority Le Leader Howard Baker. He went on to work both in show business and the news business, USA Network to CBS News, Anderson Cooper 360, and Paul is on now at CNN. His most recent books include Live from New York, an uncensored history of Saturday Night Live, and those guys have all the fun inside the world of ESPN. Joanna Weiss is the next one over. She's been an op-ed columnist for the Boston Globe since November 2009. Nine, her columns about the intersection of culture and politics appear in newspapers across the country via the New York Times Newswire. Before joining the editorial page, she covered television for The Globe as a feature writer and critic. Her stories included the first jailhouse interview with survivor champion turned convicted tax evader Richard Hatch. <laughs> and you wonder if this is the golden age of television. She also writes about TV for Slate.com. Thaddeus Russell teaches history and cultural studies at Occidental College and is the author of A Renegade History of the United States. He's written for the Los Angeles Times, New York Magazine, the Boston Globe, the Huffington Post, the Daily Beast, and Salon. And Meredith Steam was the creator and executive producer of the drama series Cold Case. Other writing credits include Homeland, which just won some prizes at the Golden Globes from Showtime, Cocaine Cowboys on HBO, New York NYPD Blue, she had an Emmy nomination for Best Dramatic Writing, and ER. She's currently writing a pilot for Showtime. So that's our panel. I hope you'll welcome everybody. Thank you. So I'm gonna, I guess I'll start in reverse order. Let's pretend this is the golden age of television, or can you make an argument? I assume you could make an argument pro and con, and we'll just uh, run through the group here. Please feel free to uh, step yeah, all over each other's I'm lines. I'm sort of a two minds, because <laughs> as far as reality shows go, no. It seems, you know, the opposite. But then there are shows like Homeland and other shows on cable that there's just, you know, numerous. They're just such high quality and complicated and really high art. Um, I might say that the network show is sort of dwindling, I think, quality-wise, and it seems that cable is um, the place for, you know, that's what's golden, I think, at least as far as drama goes. Dad? Uh, well, if you value diversity and choice, I don't think there's any question that this is the golden age of television. I'd like to talk more about why that might be now, um, which will get me into a lot of trouble. But I think that uh, there's no question by any standard um, that this, there's more diversity and choice now in television than ever before. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in the both uh, camp as well. I mean, there, there's so much choice and there's, there's so much bad stuff out there. And, and I think a lot of the bad stuff 
kind of follows a long tradition of, of watching people make fools of themselves. I mean, I think we're going back to court chester time and back to, you know, I mean, there actually is this long cultural tradition in this country of people playing the idiot. And, uh, you know, I, th I think the sad thing about, about reality TV today is that people who play the idiot do it knowing that there is a decent chance for a payday in the end. And the sad thing is when, when that becomes a really lucrative thing to do. Uh, I'm going to say no. Absolutely no. I think technologically it's a cool time because you can set your DVR and you have kind of control over what you want to see and when you see it. Um, but I'm not a big, particularly a big fan of the narrow casting, so to speak, that um, that refers to because even though it's kind of speaky, everybody's taste, um, it doesn't mean that it's a better product. Um, I think there are better eras to call golden age um, than now. Uh, you know, Meredith, you have, uh, you know, a show that is, a, you have, were, have written for shows, I would say, uh, NYPD Blue and Homeland, that are, you know, obviously if this is a golden age of television, uh, that's because of those shows like that. Uh, and I, I don't know, is your take as a working person in TV that it's, you've been in it for a while, harder, easier to make something of quality? I mean, there's only one, one Showtime and one HBO, and after that, is it just, forget it? I think it's harder on network. I mean, just for obvious reasons, there's restrictions, you know, about material, and there's structure that you have to follow to make room for commercial act breaks and things like that. And I think networks have gotten more conservative. Um, it's harder, a cable, there's less work and there's less premium, you know, Showtime and HBO are kind of the top, but there's, there's an awful lot and there's more and mo more that are branching out. There's DirecTV and Netflix, there's all these people that are looking for their first show and so there's a lot of new places to go um, if you want to try to do something um, kind of higher quality or artistically ambitious, something like that. Did I, did I misread or did you seem to be making a quizzical expression? No, no I mean, I, um, you know, I, I was thinking about how on, on cable you, you have, a, have typically a shorter season and that I'll bet that that contributes in, in certain shows to, to higher quality, that, that, that having to dilute ideas out over 22 or 23 episodes must make it a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a sort of a given, isn't it, when you have a series that you expect a few of the episodes to kind of be duds because nobody can I sustain. I found that. On Cold Case, we had to do... 22 to 24 a year and you were it became factory like you were just like you know it's not good enough but send it out because the next one's coming and that, <laughs> that's unfortunate and you cold know. case reality right about that you said you had ideas about the cultural diversity. well i actually have a question first of all uh, what by what criteria do we judge quality Right. Oh, okay. So th there is a well, I, and that that's, I think it's a, it's a very important, I think, foundational question um, because it also leads into some dangerous places once you start establishing what quality is. Um, the dangerous place would be the charge of elitism, right? So people like us in Los Angeles and New York and other places like that get to establish in our publications what quality is, um, which then places us in the position of being the liberal elite that Sarah Palin talks about. So I think it's a, it's a dangerous thing to do. I don't, I'm not opposed to discussing it, but I think it is something we should at least start with. And I'd be curious just, not just what the panelists have to say about that, but what the audience has to say about how you judge what quality is, what, what makes something golden. 
Um, and the, sort of the danger of that elitist label being attached to that. What do you think? Uh... I think, well, I mean, you're kind of talking about pieces as opposed to, I was kind of looking at a, at a broader, more cursory look at the industry. Mm-hmm. And when I think about, like, when I look back on the 70s, for instance, 1971, All in the Family goes on the air. And you have, like, this decade that ends with probably, I would say, you know, Hill Street Blues. If you go from All in the Family, which is a, a sitcom, to Hill Street Blues uh, 10 years later, in that decade, the television business kind of takes this quantum leap in terms of what it's able to do episodically. What Rune Arledge is doing with sports, what news magazines are doing, um, the investigation that news networks are doing. That to me is an era that speaks that touches on the word golden because we're, we're really, it's a paradigm shift in terms of quality because you can actually see it. The storytelling is better. The producing values are better. And so I, I'm looking at it more as a whole rather than like what makes, I mean, look, The Sopranos, Homeland, these are great series, but I think that if you trace the pedigree of some of them, you'll look back to Hill Street Blues, you'll look back to some of the things that, you know, I don't think you get to, I don't think you are where you are now without some of those things happening beforehand. Well, let me ask a question about that. Uh, In those days, there were far fewer channels to watch, and I wonder if you took the quality shows that we have now that are spread across... So I have a number. You have a number? You have a finite number? You said 1971? Well, I'm just so, using you know the yeah. debut of All in the Family. So, so in that good start in that me. year, the average household brought in seven channels. See, but my whole thing is this, I don't wait, need a show about so, cakes. Oh, so hang on. So, I'd rather have this, like <laughs> I'd rather have like and we, seven I, great channels. And I will than, defend Cupcake Wars in a second, but um, <laughs> but hang on, hang on. But now today, the average household in America brings in 120 channels. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we know that there are more than 500 available in total. That's kind of like and before, bad food and small portions. And, 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 before, and before people say, oh, that's only for rich people, 90% of American households as of today either have cable or satellite television. 90%. But with all due so, respect, yep. okay. so what? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> But that's, so, this is the yes, second. Yes. Where, this is what we yeah. need to get into. You go. Right. Well, no. I mean, I, you know, and I, I was flipping through a couple weeks ago, and I came across Cupcake Wars, and thought, hmm, I'm doing this panel. I should watch Cupcake Wars. And at first, I thought, oh, it's like it's so derivative. I mean, that's part of what you have. You have this universe of channels, and you've got a few shows that work, and so then you have a thousand copycats. And so it was like, oh boy, they've got the foreign judge, you know, and they've got this sort of like third-rate host, and they've got you know the the little videos of the people from different towns. You know, they've, they've got all the pieces put together. And I thought, oh, this is so cheesy. But 45 minutes later, there I am watching them squirting the frosting on the cupcakes. And it's, you know, it's the creative process, which I think is fascinating, whether you're talking about singing or dancing or baking. I mean, I think, I think the, good, the good reality genres and the good shows give you some, they, they give you something. Here's the problem. If you think that reality shows are bad, then you belong to a very unpopular category of Americans, which is the 1%. The 1%. <laughs> and you might want to think about whether you want to be in that category. Now, may, maybe not economically, but culturally, you have placed yourself in the 1% uh, by doing that. And so it, it's dangerous. I mean, there is a, there is a reality show devoted, it's a, that's about storage lockers, right? And when I first heard that, even, even I... There's three, four storage wars? Okay, I'm leaving. This is too much. Okay. This is, 
but even, you know, even I, when I heard that, I thought, come on. You know. but, but the thing is that there are many, many more people than us voting with their feet to watch these things, right? With their eyeballs, with the remotes. They are choosing this, and we are establishing ourselves as being superior to them if we say that what they're watching is junk. Um, you know, if you, if you think that all of television should be PBS, you are in the 0.001%. You are the Mitt Romney of the cultural elite, <laughs> if you do that. Um, so that's really, that's really something that needs to be dealt with. Why is it that a reality show, even about storage uh, lockers, four of them, uh, is a bad thing? What is that? Why, I, I'd love to know, sir, why is that in itself a bad thing? Or, 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 or of less quality than The Sopranos, which it, I love. You know. it's, it's not that it's bad. I just think that, I mean, the operative phrase here tonight is golden age, right? So, I mean, uh, you know, clearly uh, you can put somebody on and they'll read the yellow pages and somebody will watch it. But the question is, I mean, do we... Do we really? really? Oh, you, we, I mean... Then why aren't there 50 of those shows? There are. I mean... Of based, people reading the yellow pages? No, but I mean, you know what I mean. It, it, you can throw on a lot of things and people will... I mean, look at some of the stuff that's on TLC what? or Bravo or whatever. But my whole point is, does it rise to the level of, you know, excellence? And we can define excellence any way we want without being you know, kind of snobby about it. But I just, I don't see the, the whole TV landscape right now as being something that, you know, with, with few exceptions, something that's going to be remembered 20 years from now as being, you know, instrumental or taking us to another level. Homeland. Right, I said with few, oh, I, oh, absolutely. Oh, with some exceptions. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joanna, you, you've wars. written a lot of uh, co articles, which I'm sure you've heard from your readers, uh, and they're yeah. very vocal. And do they tell you you're a snob? Uh, well, you know, one of the things I did in, in my previous job at the Globe was write an American Idol blog. And so every, <laughs> every week after, you know, after every show, I would write a blog. And I, I had like, there were like thousands of thousands of people. People loved to read it and comment on it. I mean, the thing about that show in particular, and I feel like that show's on the decline, but that show at its height was, it was the equivalent of, of being a Red Sox fan. I mean, it was, it was water cooler conversation. It was a collective experience. It was something that everyone enjoyed talking about and could handicap, and it wasn't political, and it wasn't ideological, and I thought it really served a public purpose, I mean, a community purpose, and it was a lot of fun. And yes, I would definitely get people saying, you should write about important things, and anytime I write about TV, oh, this is why I care about world events, and I, you, know, you shouldn't only write about important things, but the, the reason I always liked writing about TV is that it's in people's living rooms, it's in their daily lives, it is, it's a part of their lives, and it's important to them, and, and I loved it. What is more important than television? Mm -hmm. Because it is, it is a part of everyone's life. Well, uh, how many hours do Americans spend watching the thing? So it's obviously important. Well, it's actually, I think, you know, it's a lot, but, but if certainly it's, a, it's an industry that's facing a lot of challenges too right now in terms of, you know, uh, there's a YouTube channel that's just about video games that gets enormous numbers of viewers more than any TV right. channel, yeah. you know, and, and there's uh, <coughs> uh, challenges from all sides. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have a guilty pleasure, because when you talk about American Idol, I have to admit, <laughs> I loved it because, I mean, it's, it's I think it's, it's waning a bit, but, you know, you could literally talk to anyone, I, doctors, people mm -hmm. I know on Capitol Hill. <laughs> I, we did a story once at NPR about American Idol, and I asked a friend of mine on Capitol Hill if she would talk about why she loved American Idol, and she said, oh, no, I couldn't. You know, it was just, I, even if we don't give your name, it's too embarrassing, but but everybody I know. Do you have one? Do you have a guilty pleasure? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, 
curb your enthusiasm is like that for is me, not a uh, guilty pleasure. <laughs> I'm, well, it's certainly pleasurable, and wow. uh, I think Larry would want you to feel guilty after watching it. Um, no, I watch American Idol with my kids. I enjoy it. Um, you know, the question is, does watching Ryan Seacrest make twelve million dollars a year make the whole TV industry, you know, a whole? N- fantastic era and I would say no. What he does is I think uh, harder than it looks. I will put in a little plug for Ryan Seacrest now. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I really do think that what he's doing and the moving parts that he is managing at that time and the emotion, you know, now I'm going to sound a little bit, uh, but, but you know <laughs> but he manages, he's got people who are going through these crazy emotions and he manages to be to, to, to make light of it but also to sort of treat them with respect and I mean I, I think that, that there are some, when you really kind of gra- get down to that granular level of analyzing the show, I think it does something really interesting. Meredith, yeah. do you when you're working on a show, idea do you say, I want to be on, working only on a 1% idea, or do you think that you would... I mean, you, you did Cold Case, which is a broader spectrum show. Do you, when you tell people what you do, do you say, I worked on NYPD Blue in Cold Case, or do you just feel like they're all your children and you love them just the same? Um, I, I don't think in terms of 1% or elitism. I just, you know, I'm, I write drama, I write cop shows pretty well. Um, I wrote for Beverly Hills 90210. That was my first job, and I was grateful, you know? I mean, you just, you know, I just, um, you know, some are higher quality than others, and I do strive for the highest quality I can I can do, you know, but I, um, I have guilty pleasures, too. I mean, I like a lot of those junkie shows, and it is sort of, American Idol is like this great equalizer to talk to, talk to anyone about, and... Um, Project Runway is like one of my very favorites because it's not junky. It's actual amazing skill and they make these products that like thrill you. So it's, you know, reality shows across the board are not junk and that's one that isn't. But um, I guess I don't understand the idea that it's dangerous to, to think, you know, to what is quality. Like what's so dangerous about saying I love Downton Abbey and, you know, that so do most of my friends, and so do it's dangerous the cultural that many people elite. Will hate you, hmm? and then they will vote for candidates who will do bad things to us. <laughs> <laughs> That's the danger. <laughs> do you well, think I'm joking? So do you see? Have that. you seen the debates lately and what they're talking about? They are coming to get us if they get elected, and it's, and this is one of the. I'm sorry to say, this is one of the major reasons is that there are a lot of people of our ilk, and I place myself there as well, who make judgments about what ordinary Americans consume. Uh, and how they think and how they behave and what they want and we all think it's inferior for the most part so that's why I think Sarah Palin got so much traction from this you know this trope about the liberal elites bi-coastal liberal elite I think by and large she was correct about that Uh, I would not want to see her as with any political power but um, there's no doubt that it raises that as a problem although a lot of these shows a lot of these quality shows get pretty good ratings. I mean, it's not just 1% who's watching these shows. I mean, The Sopranos got good ratings. Homeland was a big ratings hit for Showtime. I mean, you know, it's a smaller context. Mad Men, you know, again, it's not American Idol numbers, but gets very good ratings for what they're going after. Oh, sure, yeah. It's um, a pretty small Nabby. rating, a mad, mad Men. I mean, it's a pretty it's a shockingly small. Well, it's a couple million. Um, I mean, given the noise that it makes mm-hmm. in the environment, it's really mad, quite... Mad Men's maybe the counter example. Because of, the you 1% know. talk about it so much. 
Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that is that's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, which is not to say it's not. I'm not saying I'm not passing judgment on any of these shows. You know, I'm just saying that's why. But well, the Sopranos got what, like, 12 million viewers at its peak. I mean, that's those are respectable sure. numbers on a network. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. that's a, those are big right. numbers. Yeah. I'm I, I'm often sort of. Uh, amazed by what is popular you know i don't know about that you on the panel but to me i i will see show do a huge number you know this uh i don't know how many of these shows you all are familiar with but abc has a show called once upon a time it's based on fairy tales which i have never actually watched but when they presented the clips of it at, at the event in new york where they show these things to advertisers and they show clips i thought it was the most ridiculous idea i'd ever heard and it's a hit uh so I don't know, do you share this kind of sense of that somehow, sometimes things make absolutely no sense in terms of what's popular? Well, I had this, I was, um, I was head of original programming USA Network, so I would buy ideas. I would sit there and people would come in and pitch. And I was reminded daily about the fact that none of us know anything. Right. Because um, <laughs> you, you never know what's going to work. I had to, uh, um, the first pilot I did was for a show called Monk. And um, people, um, you know, told me I only, uh, I was totally crazy and it would never work. And the guy was very upsetting to, you know, think about. And you only casted him because he looked like you. And I hear all these, <laughs> all these, all these weird things. But, um, you know, I, I passed on The Biggest Loser. I, I remember um, the, the guy who ran the reality division came to me and said, you know, we got it. it I said, gosh, it sounds so humiliating. Are people going to want to, oh, God, I just, uh, I just fought with it. And it's a, it was a huge hit on NBC. So I think that the whole thing is, you know, whether it's dating back to Touched by an Angel or whatever, I mean, you, you, you just never know. Um, and, and there's a lot of money spent every year. I mean, just think. If you link back to NBC when they had the Cosby show on at 8 o'clock, they could never program 8.30. They spent 10 years trying to find one comedy to go after their biggest hit. And they, then they put Friends there, then they put Seinfeld there. They could never... For, it's, it's, it's kind of hard because it's, it's not quantum physics. You, there's no absolutes. So, I mean, I'm right with you. You just never... You just never know, and you're continually amazed. Well, it makes me wonder, first of all, whether you define, it by your terms, that you know, if it's popular, therefore it is good. Miles Davis, when asked what good music was, said, "If it sounds good, it is good." Uh, do we believe that, ladies and gentlemen of the panel? <laughs> but how does that translate to TV? I'm just... If it looks good to people, it is good to them. I'm mystified by Two and a Half Men. That's the one that's my story. No, seriously, I watch it and I do not crack a smile. In the Charlie Sheen, and I don't, I don't watch it that much, but in the Charlie Sheen days and, and the Ashton Kutcher days, I just, that, that one, the, there, there are so many, and, and I guess maybe the, the good comedies are the elite comedies to me, uh, but that, one, that one's the one that mystifies so me. So there, there is an academic uh, TV scholar who, who, whose thesis is that the greater the complexity of the narrative, the higher the quality is. Um, his name is Jason Mattel, um, and he's worked, he teaches at Middlebury in Vermont. Um, so, but that seems to me sort of arbitrary, right? Is why is complexity necessarily a good thing? You know, and so of course he, he points to all the, the programs that we love, you know, Sopranos and Mad Men and all the ones with lots of complexity, but why is that necessarily better than the show that I've seen every episode of, and I'm the only history professor in the country who has seen every episode of Jersey Shore. Why is it necessarily better than that show? 
Uh, I, I have to say, I have <laughs> never been able to figure out Jersey Shore. Maybe, maybe you can explain this to me as a critic. I, I work in an I mean, office. of course, I only watch it as a cultural critic. Right. I have to do this. It's not... But I, I have <clears throat> colleagues at the it's Hollywood my job. Reporter. Really... They loved, and they're smart guys, guys mostly. They love Jersey Shore. And huh. I thought, okay, I will give it a shot. And there must be something that I am not getting, and I can't get more than five minutes along, and I'm absolutely excruciatingly Join us. Join the 99%. We're, we'll welcome <laughs> no, you, I don't think. I mean, I don't think they're making that show for us. Uh, I mean, they, they don't but, expect to... But, but to, I know people who kind of are, you know, the 1%, and they still like the show. See, I they're think in counseling, I hope. <laughs> that's, I think that's the core gesture tradition. I mean, I, I did, when it came out, I interviewed a professor of, I think, theater and Italian studies and things. She... This is very pinhead sounding, but she sort of traced it back to Commedia dell'arte. Like she said, wow. there is, you know, you could make an argument that there are these kind of stock characters that are in theatrical tradition that are also on Jersey Shore. I mean, I, again, I don't think this is a... But the, and there's, it's one of those nothing new under the sun That's ideas. also elitist. That means, you know, it, it means that, it means that <laughs> if it's like this, some, some classical greatness, then it is good, right? Why can't it be good on its own? I'm a little annoyed, I have to say, by the, <laughs> by the question, but that's okay. Uh, um, but I just, I mean, I just want to spend one second, a nanosecond at least, with going back to some other errors, because I understand that there's just this abundance of choices, um, and, and I think that that serves a lot of interest. But it just seems to me that television, except for, and, and, I, and I would say this even if you were, weren't sitting here, except for something like the home for Homeland or Sopranos or things like that. It's just not as compelling as it used to be. I mean, look, when we start with the original golden age of television, which was what, 48 to 62, when you talked about all the live drama that was on every single night, every single week, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't around, but I mean, Our Town with Paul Newman and Patty Chayefsky's doing Marty and this and this and that, every single night was an event. And then, I mean, in the period that I was talking about, all these unbelievable shows that were there and, and, and transformation in the way television actually came into the living room. I mean, you, I, mean I mentioned it parenthetically, but if you look at what Rune Arledge did with sports in the 1970s and the whole concept of storytelling and the way that things were edited and the way that pictures came to us, that was, a, that was a, just a quantum leap over anything that had come before. And so... I guess, you know, with all due respect to everybody who's working really hard in television now, I just don't see it as, you know, as a game changer. I, I, do you think it's at all cyclical? I mean, maybe there's just uh, ebbs and flows, and that's part of, you know, we've sort of burnt out on one sort of thing, and I don't know. I mean, I don't have an answer to that. There used to be ebbs and flows with, like, for instance, after The Cosby Show and Friends and Seinfeld, then comedies kind of went in the tank, and then... You got like, you know, Modern Family and Big Bang and everything to kind of resurrect the genre. I mean, David Chase, you know, when you think about Sopranos, he wrote that it was originally going to be at Fox and Fox passed on it. I mean, you, you can't, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine because it's truly one of the great shows in the history of television, but Fox passed on it. And so HBO was smart to pick it up. And then all of a sudden that launched another round. But what um, NYPD Blue and St. Elsewhere and I guess Hill Street Blues really was the was the, mm-hmm. the first one that, you know, in terms of real quality. I mean, that those were big changes for me, at least uh, as a right. as a watcher. I mean, for I, I think you touched on this, but as a as a person in the business, 
you know, I, I, a lot of times I hear people talk about why is there so much junk on TV, but it, it is incredibly much more difficult than it looks, right? To make a good show. Writing the shows? To make writing, a successful show for getting a, a good show. show is hard, you know? <laughs> it's hard to write a show. Um, yeah, I always remember when I first started at NYPD Blue, it was like 1996 or something, um, I had just come off of Beverly Hills 90210, which was, you know, schlocky, terrible show. And I was on this show with David Milch, who created it, and he was like deconstructing a scene or something. And we started talking about how ambitious he was about the show and how high the quality was. And he said to me, television does not demand quality, but it doesn't preclude it either. And I think that's still true. I think you can just write junky shows and do the first, you know, like there's lazy rooms and there's really hardworking rooms and I mean writer's rooms. And it's like, let's do the first thing that comes to our head. That'll work and it will, you know, but I think there's, for me, I want to be in the room that wants to, you know, climb a little higher and work a little harder, but both exist. And I think, you know, and one may get great ratings and one may get, like there really is no knowing what, how it's gonna come out. I had no idea Homeland was gonna be popular. I was questioning when we were making it, does, does anyone wanna see a post 9-11 show and terrorism and Middle East and uh, You know, you just do not know what people will take to until it airs and you get the numbers the next day. Mm-hmm. And in so many, for, you know, if you make a movie like that, uh, every movie that was set in that setting Fifth. Yeah. So, you know, and yet, I don't know, why does that work on TV and it becomes golden and then it's, it's something else at the movie theater? Well, I do think what television gives you is the opportunity to do serial storytelling and, and long drawn out storylines and draw out characters in a more leisurely way that, you know, than you can in a, in a two hour movie. So uh, in some ways I would think it's just, a, you know, it's a better opportunity as a writer. To, to make something deeper and more interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it really is just, it's so mysterious to me, like, why people took to it. And I'm glad they did, but, you know, a lot of people make great shows and no one watches them. That's, and they go away quickly. It's, I mean, I, I don't quite know uh, whether you feel this, this fragmenting of the audience that's become, you know, a huge curse for the networks. Certainly the big networks are expected to gather the big all the eyeballs, but everybody is battling, you know, a rating, I mean, you could probably knock out a statistic better than I could of what used to be an easy rating to get and is now an impossible, you know, rating to get. Does it, do you feel like the island is shrinking for you as a writer? I mean, theoretically, Um, you have more opportunity because of the multiplicity of channels, and yet, I don't know if it feels that way. There's less work for writers, I do think. I don't know be- if it's because of the, the network, how it's changing. It's definitely um, tighter now. But there's also a relief to, you know, when, when Cold Case premiered, we got like 17 million viewers. And that's like, no one gets that anymore. Like it's as a premiere, you know, and that's fine. You can get 10 and you can survive. You know, like that rapidly, 10 years later, making 10 million on a premiere is like, decent, you know, you can survive, whereas like you would have been killed 10 years ago if that was your opening number. It's just, so the pressure is a little less. You don't have to get the sky high ratings right away. But you get killed very quickly if it doesn't work. Yeah, but that was always so. 
I mean, people, but I don't know, was it? Because the story about Seinfeld famously is that audiences hated it when it I went on the air. I have a law and order. Uh, in fact, Brandon Tartikoff said to Dick Wolf, if you don't put a woman in that show, I'm going to, you know, by next season, uh, I'm going to take it off the air. I mean, uh, actually, St. Elsewhere was allowed to struggle. I think it depends on the people running the networks. Um, NBC in the 1980s was blessed by the fact that they had Grant Tinker, who one of the great men in all of television. He was, uh, did, you know, Mary Tyler Moore, and uh, he, was, he was running NBC with, in a way that gave Brandon Tartikoff, who was head of programming, you had a lot of margin for error. They could keep shows on for quite some time. Saying elsewhere, first couple of weeks, I think it was like friends and relatives watching until they started like, you know, <laughs> really? gaining momentum and, and people were able to write about it and find it. And um, I, I think to your point, that doesn't, that doesn't really happen that much anymore. I mean, I've certainly had network executives say to me, we would, I would, we, Seinfeld would die after like an airing and a half now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a little scary, right? Well, if you watch the first season of Seinfeld, actually, it was a different show. They, it, the multiple storylines, and, uh, and, and Larry David was actually able to become Larry David, like in the second season, you know, with the writing and stuff. But the you first see, season was kind of... Is this plain. our fault in the media? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that still happens. I mean, I think 30 Rock was given a, a chance on NBC to kind of grow into itself. And, and I mean, I think a lot, you know, one thing I learned as a TV critic was, uh, you know, in the beginning of the year, you get all, in the summer, you get all the pilots. And you watch the pilots and you make these judgments like, oh, that's terrible and that's great. And oftentimes, you know, what, what the show turned out to be would be completely different from the pilot. I mean, you know, and, and I've talked to, to TV writers and, and, and producers who say, you know, it takes sometimes five or six episodes of a, of a network show to really know what your show is and who your character are, who your characters are. You get into a rhythm. Parks and Recreation is a show like that. I think it started off in this abbreviated season and it was, you know, Leslie Nope was kind of this fool, you know, Steve Carell, you know, sort of Michael Scott kind of character. And you know, they had a short season and it wasn't working right and they kind of retooled for the next season and it was a much better show. Uh, so I think, you know, everyone needs a little bit of patience, but the people who, who don't have the patience are the people in the network. I mean, don't blame us. <laughs> well, I just thought of all the writing about the ratings. You know, it didn't used right. to be that people would read the next day. Now it's like box office. This movie's number one. Right. This movie didn't open at number one. And, and there, that's true. If, and we all know, if we pay attention at all, that Playboy Club or, you know, didn't do well and therefore died very quickly. Well, something happened with the movie business uh, in the 90s, and it, is, it went to... TV, and now it's actually gone to books um, because you have these opening weekends and you have a very small window where you can get eyeballs. And if you don't get them then, um, the studios and the networks and now the publishers kind of give up. Um, so it's, there's a lot of pressure to, to front load and to get you know, the publicity out and everything else. On this, I, I was... The previous book before this book was just eight years ago, and I was amazed at how the publishing business, not to take us off course, but you know, they told me to start tweeting six months before the book came out because you have a limited amount of time, and that's what's going on in television now, even to a greater extent. Do they ask you to tweet about your shows? No. <laughs> I'm just wondering. I've never been asked to tweet. Yeah, you don't have to. So, Thad, you're making me nervous because you've been quiet for a few minutes. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, so, okay. Is the definition of success at this point, is it legitimate to say it's a number? 
A ratings number? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I was thinking of other numbers. Um, in terms of diversity, I wanted to come back to Oh, the, you wanted to do diversity? The diversity question. So, That's good. Let's so, here, so here's some other stats. Um, so we went from seven on average coming in channels to a household to 118. That's one. Representation of African Americans uh, in television uh, has increased from um, seven, six to 7% in the early 1970s to 14% today which is higher than the percentage of African-Americans in the United States population. Um, the percentage of Latinos uh, was around 1% to 2% in the early 1970s. It's still nowhere near what it should be, but it has tripled, or more than tripled. It's about 7% now. Um, the number of uh, gay characters on television programs has increased from zero to about 150, according to GLAAD. Um, so that's a tremendous diversity in many ways, not just offerings, but in terms of representation. So I'm now about to get into a lot of trouble. In fact, I'll probably lose my career and my family will abandon me. So I was raised by socialists in Berkeley. I have been in departments uh, in academia that are dominated by the left. And I'm here to tell you today that the two people most responsible for all that good diversity are Ronald Reagan and <laughs> Rupert Murdoch. So Ronald Reagan's FCC in the 1980s radically deregulated the industry, which gave a, the ability of people like Murdoch to break that horrible oligopoly of the three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, right? Which had this stranglehold on the industry and really clamped down on diversity of, of what we could view. Murdoch was the first to move in, did it, of course, very aggressively, um, and established the fourth network, but he opened the way to what many people think is a terrible thing, which was the establishment of conglomerates, right? Because what he did was, and the FCC allowed this, started buying up all these other channels and stations and pulling them all together into a conglomerate. Now it's true, we, most of television is owned by about nine conglomerates, but those conglomerates fill all these markets that had been neglected by that oligopoly in the 1970s, and that is why we now have two African-American national networks, right? We have two national Spanish language networks, and we have far more diversity, although it could certainly be even better in many ways, than we ever had before, both in who's on the screen and in what kinds of things we can watch. Um, so Murdoch, the other thing that Murdoch did, which he's most hated for, is he established Fox News. And I would like to speak in praise of Fox News for a moment. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> Fox News broke another monopoly, uh, which was an ideological monopoly. The three, as many of you know, I'm sure if you watched, have watched the nightly news, national news in the, from the 1970s onward, basically all three were indistinguishable in terms of what they said ideologically. Well, Fox News, yes, they are absolutely, of course, not fair and balanced, and that's a ridiculous claim. And in fact, that's why I think they're a good thing. They're the first openly partisan, basically, national news network, right? And they were followed by MSNBC, which is sort of their flip, right? It's, their, it's the liberal version of Fox. Very partisan, no pretense of the myth of objectivity, which is purely a myth. There's no such thing as objectivity. So now we have, we have left liberal, we have very conservative, and then we have the middle, but that's, that we could do better, but that is quite an improvement over Brokaw and Rather and the rest of them.
and we're done. <laughs> just trying to and now it's time to go. I believe you have had the la I, on that provoking note. I will okay. think that is the last word, and we're going to go to uh, audience questions. Uh, first, I'd just like to say that Thad, your statistics on diversity are admirable in front of the screen, but I think they speak a different story behind the screen or behind the camera. Mm. Um, but my question is. I was a TV agent for about 10 years, so I'm familiar with the economics of the 90s. They've changed considerably. Um, there's a lot more pressure now to de deliver DVR-proof programming, which I think speaks to why the right. NFL and sports programming and even reality shows command a much higher dollar now than dramas and comedies. Um, we used to have the dancing Chesterfield cigarettes on I Love Lucy, but I'm curious if Meredith has had any pressure from the networks, I guess not in Showtime, but um, you know, nowadays you'll see more product placement and what the economic pressures mean for the future of television. Are we destined just to have DVR-proof programming and product placement within the program itself? Personally, no, I have not had that kind of pressure, but I have noticed it in shows, just really horrible, shameless product placement that I'm sure someone got their arm twisted about it. Um, when you say DVR proof, you mean zipping through commercials? Not, yeah, not on Showtime, um, but yeah, the networks, um, I'm sure they're, they're uh, bringing the hammer down on people as much as they can about that. For so many years, uh, television was about uh, being able, uh, television was the, the sort of farm team that took the artists or the actors who then went on to, to movies where they get their big payday. And now what we see is guys like Don Cheadle and Dustin Hoffman and on and on and on going the other way. I mean, I would argue that that's an example of what the talent thinks is the golden place to go. And I just was curious about what you all might think about What that. you're seeing is largely a reflection of strain on the movie business. The movie business is in more trouble than TV, probably. And uh, a lot of times, the people you'll see are Holly Hunter or Glenn Close. These are people who are maybe women who are not getting the kind of roles they used to get. But even directors you're seeing now, producers, they're all flocking to television because there's opportunity. And even though people tend to regard t film in their minds as somehow more elite and preferable in the Hollywood community and television is supposed to be a rung uh, underneath, uh, it's, it is somewhat, uh, TV does make more money uh, in, in success than, than most films and, and, uh, and it is an opportunity for people to work who are finding it difficult in the movie business. I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in on that one. I would say there's also not a stigma, and I think there probably once was, um, uh, you know, more of a stigma, this idea of going back to TV, that you were sort of backtracking in your career, and now there is so much quality, no matter, you know, however you choose to define it, there really, there are good roles, but then, and there's great writing, and I, I just, I, I feel like the, it, that is also a reflection of the quality of television. Uh, I'd just say on, on the earlier question, you know, the whole thing with DVRs, of course football games are DVR proof because you don't want to, uh, you know, watch them three days later. Uh, or American Idol is largely DVR proof because you, you get hooked into that narrative. You know, what, one, thing we, one thing that will happen now is that uh, our cable companies are extracting a lot of information about our habits from our DVRs. They can tell what we watched, when we stopped, when we skipped. And they're trying to figure out what to, to, to pinpoint ads at you specifically based on that. And they'll say that they, it's not identified by name, that you're, not, you're a number and not a name, but they will, uh, 
it's kind of scary. They can follow you by way of what you then go to the store and buy, and there are computers that scan your credit cards, so they know a lot about you. And the DVR is, you know, is now it's becoming more and more a tool in the arsenal. So that might be something that cuts the other way from the concern about being DVR proof. I had a couple of questions. Uh, number one is when you talk about that one percent and elitism and the ninety-nine percent. How is television different from books when uh, the printing press became widespread throughout the world? I mean, we have a proliferation of millions of books being published that probably most of them are not of good quality. But then you have the Shakespeare's of the world. And my second question is, with the uh, technological advancement, uh, how do you see uh, like the medium of YouTubes and, and sister uh, technologies like that when instantly you get a worldwide audience rather than a cultural uh, narrowness within the United States and the English-speaking world. So when it becomes instantly worldwide, do you think that will dramatically change how we watch television? My editor, um, my late, last editor um, at Simon & Schuster, his, his main, client, uh, main uh, author uh, was Dr. Phil. And... Um, I remember sitting in his office and seeing Dr. Phil's books all over the office and knowing that that book sold a lot more than mine did, um, and that I felt like he, in a sense, was doing me a favor by publishing my book. Um, and the resentment is, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to fight back. Um, but basically, Dr. Phil is giving to the people something that I'm not, you know, and I don't... And how, how can I say that what he's giving to them is inferior to my completely brilliant history of the United States. Um, you know, I, it's I just, again, it's something like, I, I feel like instead of, instead of bemoaning and resenting those who are popular but dumb, I think, so we think are dumb, I think we should instead put more energy into figuring out what it is that they're doing that is appealing to so many people. Um, unless you really have a low opinion of people, generally. Um, you know, right, because that's really, really where this leads, right? If you, if you think that 99% of the population watches junk, well, you think they're stupid. Um, you think that they have sort of an inferior intellect to yours, that their interests are less, lesser than yours. So. Um, so it's the same thing. It's the same argument. I apply that publishing or film or television. It's all the same. Yeah. Question to you, Shakespeare and Snooky. You know, I mean, really, like what? <laughs> prove to me scientifically that Shakespeare is better than... Okay. It's kind of like porn, you know? You know it when you see it. You might not be able to define why it's better, but you kind of do know it when you see I it. I know it when I see it. <laughs> With this whole golden era of television idea, um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't really know television before 1998, really. So, but... Uh, you didn't miss anything. <laughs> with, an art, with an art form in general, um, you know, I mean, we look back and there are a few greats who sort of lead the pack, and there is a whole crowd of people who weren't really quite as good and we kind of tend to get nostalgic and look back with rose-tinted glasses and only remember the great stuff and sort of assume that everything else was always about as that good, too. So, I mean, if you look at now, the number of really great shows that are on television now or ended recently, I mean, such a long list of, like, Louis, Breaking Bad, Sopranos. I mean, the, you could probably name a dozen truly great shows that are on television, like, this week. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe... maybe we're just looking back with a little bit too much nostalgia, and this is a really great era. I, I mean, I don't know. I still watch I Love Lucy. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said for the, the good shows that are on now, but I think it's easy to forget just how much great stuff proceeded. I, That's, I, would say, I think he's got a good point, though, about 
people watching critically, more critically than maybe we're, than, than maybe everyone gives them credit for, and also just the idea that there's a, a time and a place for everything, and that you can be a person who likes highbrow and lowbrow at the same time. I mean, you know, I, I love Homeland and The Sopranos, and you know, I love all those shows, but I also, you know, the, the, the last week I was watching Wipeout, Winter Wipeout, with my kids, and it's like people falling off of big, giant, puffy things into water, and my kids loved it, and I mean, you, it, 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 it's not a contradiction to like both of those things. It's amazing how you can like something if your kids like it, <laughs> because it gives you. Something. But I was laughing too. I was really. I was laughing. Can you speak to? I think there's a big trend in, in a lot of shows that, or the idea of like jumping the shark, and that they start very high quality, but then by the they after season like six, six shows in a movie or whatever that um, community references, that is that can it still be a golden age when so many shows really seem to be going past their prime in terms of the quality of this sh- entertainment it's not easy the idea of i mean you you think about i remember what seinfeld said when they canceled he said we just can't do it anymore it's not going to be good i mean and that was after 10 seasons i mean some shows you know you just it's really hard to to keep that kind of consistency yeah i mean it's just sort of like you know a life, you know, like a, a dog's life or something, you know, like a, the, you can maybe seven years is about the longest I think a drama can hang in there, maybe even less. And, you know, sometimes they, they go on longer than they should. Um, just really for economic reasons, like when the sort of artistic ideas die out, but the money's still coming, a lot of shows just hang on. ER was like that. I wrote for ER for a little while. And I think early on it was really good. In the middle it started sagging. By the end it was terrible, but it was just making tons of money. And so they just hung in there. And yeah, that's unfortunate. It's totally an economic reason, really. I'm going to say this out loud in this room. I'm one of those people who actually produce in reality TV. (laughs) My hero. Um, (laughs) And um, since we're on actually the economics, I mean, I'm I'm a TV watcher, you know, my mom never knew that I put my TV set on in my room, and I never turned it off. And so I'm from, you know, shows that I watched as a kid to MASH and to All in the Family, which was a great family discussion for us and used to today to the really well-written shows. But in the economics, being one of the people that produce reality TV, which is so incredibly inexpensive to produce in comparison. And even if you don't love soap operas, taking off a soap opera, which are mostly all union, to put on a show where everybody behind the scenes are not union because they're not considered writers, or reality TV where we don't consider ourselves or are called writers. So the econ- I just wanted to, anybody to speak to the reality of, unfortunately, reality TV classically called non-scripted, even though it is. Um, and that's some of the proliferation of it in comparison to what is considered scripted, cast, actor-driven um, TV. Isn't it true that the writer's strike really gave rise to reality shows? Well, the reality, you know, the, right, the Writers Guild made a, an effort to unionize the yeah, reality people. Right, and that's what has and to happen. I think I mean, that the strike, they became overwhelmed by other agendas, yeah. and they dropped that effort. So certain people who had stuck their necks out to try to say, we should be considered writers and we should be unionized, were then left, unfortunately, a sort of roadkill right. when yeah. the writer's yeah. strike but, happened. And, and to your point, though, if you're a network and you have, let's say you have a need at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, um, you can develop five or six, even probably more, reality platforms and reality ideas um, for what it takes to do one pilot. 
And, and those numbers, um, because the networks are under so much pressure financially, um, that gets into their head and that, that informs the equation. And so, you know, there's nothing better than for the network, a reality show, which, you know, probably didn't cost that much to go ahead and, you know, start taking in big numbers, whereas there's no guarantee. And in fact, by and large, they have a terrible track record. Um, look, they thought Playboy Club was going to be fantastic, and they spent a fortune on it, and well, it, you yeah. know, it lasted for two weeks. I mean, that was NBC, and we, what we're getting at NBC right now is a great case study of this, because NBC hired Bob Greenblatt, who was for, at Showtime, and had put all these great Dexter and Weeds and all these shows that were considered to be quality shows on Showtime's there, and everybody said, oh, this is the greatest thing, he's going to come to NBC, and we're going to have some shows that count. And he hasn't really had a chance to get his fingers into the mix, but it's been very, very rough, and um, he put a lot of energy into Prime Suspect, which would not take, no matter how he tried, and what has worked for him, The Voice, they brought back Fear Factor, he's having to fall back onto that crutch, I'm sure he doesn't like it, he would never admit it, but that's, what's, that's what is making money for NBC right now, and everything else is nothing but trouble. I, I gravitate to some of your statements on um, the arbitrary, arbitrary aspects of taste, um, but I find an issue with uh, just the definitive in seeing that, saying that if you are of someone that's more inclined to highbrow and you regard other people that what, you know, one would assume as junk and just you automatically assume that they're stupid, I find that there's a little bit more complexity to the taste in people that, is, that lacks of that argument. And um, anyway, um, and I wanted to make that statement. And then another thing in this aspects of the diversity in television, I think while there may be a diversity there, I think there's still a lack of complexity in the characters that are being presented. Um, they're very um, surface. You know, there's uh, a lot more, and especially with uh, black, Latino, or gay identities, uh, there's not a long range of uh, identities that's being placed on TV. And I understand why, but I just want to post, place that in there with uh, your initial sure. argument. Oh, yeah. I um, wrote a pilot last year for Fox, and every person who was writing a pilot for Fox was called to a mandatory presentation about diversity and how our lead characters had to be um, not Caucasian. You know, like you had, like I was writing one about two women, and I had already written it, and they were both white, and it was demanded that one be cast African American. So there was like this great effort. The presentation was, you know, it was economic too. It was like our audience is now diverse. That's who's mm -hmm. watching. That's, that's why we're doing this. It wasn't like out of goodwill, um, I think. <laughs> um, so I was impressed that we had this mandatory meeting and presentation. I was impressed that they wanted to make this their priority, but they just wanted to take two characters that I had written that were white women and be like, just cast one of them Latina, just cast one of them African American. Like, that was okay, because it isn't. That's a whole different life experience, and it was maddening to think, like, that's how shallow the, the thought goes, is just, you know, take the exact same character, change nothing. You know, that's just, that's just not um, honest. There's no question that many, many characters of color and gay characters are either shallow or superficial or stereotypical, right? Um, but, you know, so I'm not painting a perfect world here. I'm just simply saying there is a ma massive improvement on this since the 1970s, basically since deregulation. And because of deregulation, is my point. So the, it, it's ironic, you know, R Rupert Murdoch, who 
in Fox News is promoting Christian conservatives' family values, right? His programming has been subverting the American family for 30 years, beginning with Married with Children and moving onward, and The Simpsons and the rest of it. That man is bringing down American civilization faster than anyone else, <laughs> yet at the same time, the people he pays to give the news, right, are the ones who are talking about, you know, good old and American tell you traditions. And what, the writers, almost all the writers are white. Almost all the writers are men. Which someone else raised. I and mean, that's, yeah. and that's, they're writing about what they know. And right. Yeah. That's kind of the root of it. 